Take your Bibles, if you would, and join me at Matthew chapter 6. If you're one of those that uses a digital device, it's easy. Just search for Matthew 6 and you'll be there. Last week, we finished up chapter 5 of Matthew with that seemingly impossible command of Jesus, be perfect. And we learned that that was not a command for us to go out and try to do something that is absolutely, humanly speaking, impossible to do. We understood that what Jesus was doing was the same thing he did when he healed someone. He gave a command that also had in it a promise. And so from that statement of Jesus, which is, this is the kind of life that with my help I want you to lead, he then begins to line out for us what that looks like. So at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6, he begins talking about how it impacts the way we live out in the public. He talks about your giving, he talks about your praying, he talks about fasting, and and, and how we should live our lives as followers of Christ in the public realm. And it's only natural then that from that he would say, okay, but this outward way that you live your life is based on the way that you live your inward life. And so the passage we're going to look at today In Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 19 down to verse 34, kind of a long passage, but it really links together what goes on inside our hearts that can allow us to do these things in our day-to-day walk out in the world. In other words, he talks about our treasure and our trust. Where do we put our treasure? Where do we put our trust? So before we get into the passage, I'd like for us just to... uh, pray together. Will you join me? Father, today we are talking about something that is very intimate. Something that for some of us we squirm because we think this is all about money, and it's really not. It's about everything that is temporal in our lives. But it does have to do with where we place our heart, what it is that we treasure. And I pray that in these moments together, you will open our hearts so that we will hear you speak to us. I am as sinful as anyone that is listening to my words this morning. I am as broken and in, as, in, in the same amount of need to make sure that my treasure is placed in the right direction as anyone else. And so I pray in these few moments I will become a conduit of your word to all of us as we think together about what it means to place our treasure and our trust in you. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Treasure and trust. Well, let's begin with the treasure. Two questions basically Jesus asks. The first one is, what do we truly treasure? What is it that we really treasure in our lives? And in order for us to understand that, Jesus gives us three pairs of things that we contrast. Let's just look at them. Beginning in verse 19, Jesus says this, Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. That proves I can have a tongue twister even on a pre-record, okay? So we're happy with that. So the first set Jesus gives is where are you going to place your treasure? Two treasures, 
earthly treasure or heavenly treasure? And he contrasts the two. He says earthly treasure are those kinds of things that although they may seem so valuable, are actually very vulnerable. They're vulnerable both to passive harm, things like moth and rust, and the, the, just the natural degradation of things, and active attack, active harm, thieves breaking in and stealing, things destroying the things that we hold so precious. Jesus doesn't say there's anything wrong with planning using temporal things. The problem is when we are hoarding, when we are gathering to ourselves and placing our treasure, the thing that we, that we love the most in earthly things, in earthly possessions, in earthly treasures. It also is reflected in Jesus' words over in Luke chapter 12. In Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, watch out and be on guard against all greed because, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, we fall into this trap of, of investing in earthly treasures when we see our lives as being made up of earthly possessions. And next thing we know, those earthly possessions become our master instead of becoming our servant. You say, well, but Steve, okay, how do I enjoy the things in the world around me without loving it? Well, the answer is that we invest ourselves in heavenly treasure. We, we, we enjoy the earthly things. Jesus told us to. The Bible tells us we should enjoy the fruit of our labors, but we don't invest our interest and our, our major focus on those. What we do instead is we focus on heaven, investing in God's causes, investing in God's people. You see, the difference is when we invest in earthly treasures, we say, I want to have more. When we invest in heavenly treasures, we say, I want to give more. Because when we begin investing in the heavenly things, it's all the things that are going to last into eternity. And let me ask you a simple question. What is the one thing on this planet that will live forever? It's us. It's people. We are the only things in all of creation that are going to live forever. And so if we're going to invest in heavenly things, we need to be investing in people and investing in them and in their lives. And so as we begin putting our treasure in heavenly things, things are going to bring an eternal reward, we suddenly realize that our material resources, whether it's money, time, possessions, material things, can be used as our servant in order to enhance eternal treasure. Well, then he gives us a second pair in verses 22 and 23. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? Wow. Where do we set our hearts what do we focus on? He uses the image of the eye, and the eye and the heart in the Bible are often synonymous. And he says, where do we focus our hearts? Where do we set our hearts? And we need to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, when I think about the way I live my life, where do I focus my heart? Now let me say this very straightforward. I don't have any problem if you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you've not yet surrendered your life to his lordship, I have no problem with you focusing your eyes on the things around you because that's all you have. And in a lost world, what should we expect? Of course they're going to focus their attention 
on the world around them because they have no hope for anything more than that. So that's what they're going to do. But if we who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ, we're followers of Jesus Christ, and we're serving him, and we say we recognize there's something beyond the doorway of death, i got to just ask myself and ask you, why would we focus on earthly things? Why would we do that? And I'm telling you, if, if I find myself, if you find yourself focusing on earthly things more than on heavenly things, you need to examine yourself and ask yourself, why am I doing that? Why am I living that kind of a life? Because you see, no one can do what is right until they can see what is right. And so we focus and fix our eyes on the thing that we are most in love with. And so if we catch ourselves focusing on earthly things, maybe we've set up an idol in our lives. Let me just be honest. But not always. Sometimes it is just that we fall into bad habits. We see the world around us. We hear what they promote. We get into that pattern. Next thing you know, we're patterning our lives just after the world. We really love the Lord. We, we care about Him. And we don't even realize how far we have drifted. Let me just give you a quick example of what I mean by that. Every one of us knows that lustful thoughts about someone who is not your spouse is a sin whether it is a specific person or whether it's just the opposite gender in general. So, we open up a magazine, and there's a picture of a scantily clad person, and so what do we do? We close it. We say, I don't need to be looking at that kind of stuff. We turn on our television. There's a television show that advocates uh, relationships outside of marriage. You know what? We don't need to watch that show. We have no problem with that. We say, you know what? It is wrong to think these kind of things, and I don't want those things into my heart, right? Okay. But do we recognize that just as wrong is it for us to focus our heart on material things instead of on spiritual things. So, when we turn on the TV and the commercial says basically to imagine yourself behind the wheel of this car, when you say, nope, I don't need to do that. I don't need to imagine my mind there. I don't need to be thinking about that. Or, wouldn't it be nice if you could have this in your life? I'm not going to go there. And we run from that. Because what happens is we fall into these patterns of being to focus on those kinds of, of temporal things. And next thing we know, they've taken over our minds. So the two things we draw from this whole thing about our, our heart and our eyes and what we focus on is, number one, we need to be constantly examining ourselves. But we also need to recognize that if I fall prey and allow these things to enter into my mind, they can do me spiritual harm. Just as much as looking at pornography. Now listen very carefully. Just as much as looking at pornography can make my heart stray away from my first love, which is my wife. Looking at material things and glorifying material things and glorifying temporal things can lead my heart away from my first love, which is my Lord. Let's covenant to abandon both of them, okay? So then the third dyad he gives, the third choice, are the two masters. Look at verse 24. No one can be a slave of two masters. I appreciate the way that the Holman did that and used the word slave because this is a slavery analogy, okay? He says no one can be a slave of two masters. It's either he will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and of money. Now, some of you remember, if you grew up with the old King James, the word was mammon. M-A-M-M-O-N. And none of us knew what that meant when we were kids in Sunday school and we were learning our Bible verses. Mammon literally is a word out of the Aramaic that means anything that you put your trust in other than God. 
And so Jesus says, you cannot serve two different masters. Now, in the working world today, you can have two different employers. Each employer demands his or her set of time and responsibilities. It's easy. My dad, for a while, when I was a boy, worked three jobs. And you can do that. But if you're a slave, your master has the right to call on you anytime, anywhere, for anything. And so you can only serve one master. And so Jesus uses that analogy and says, listen, you cannot serve both God and money. What does it mean to have money be your master? Well, i got to tell you, money is not an overpowering God. It's very subtle. It doesn't demand a lot out of it. It only asks us to give him two or three days out of the year. You know, Black Friday and some of those big sale days. But for the most part, money is happy to live right along with all the other pantheon of idols that we see in today's world. Pride and vanity and selfishness and those kinds of things. Status and power and pleasure. But what happens is over time, money begins to lure us into his clutches. And so we begin to trust our trust funds. We find security in our securities. And next thing we know, money has become our master rather than our servant. And there's one statement that every one of us has been guilty, I think, of saying. One question. We'll talk about this some more in just a couple of minutes. And that is when we're thinking about some type of decision, one of the first questions is, well, can we afford it? Well, I understand you've got, to be, you've got to be realistic about your financial resources, but if we're not careful, when we say to our children, well, I would love to get that for you, but we just can't afford it, it means that our money is more important than what you may need or you may even want. And while that might be very true in that particular situation, we're teaching our children that the final arbiter of the decisions that we make in our family is what? The almighty dollar. Ha, what a funny name that we've given to our money, isn't it? The almighty dollar. But living for the Lord means that Jesus is in charge. And when we ask those questions about, you know, should I give to a capital campaign? Should I give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering? Should I offer some benevolence help to another brother or sister in the church? The first question is not, can I afford it? The first question is, what would God want me to do? How can I most faithfully do what he would have me do, knowing that he is the one that's in charge and he is guiding my life? He is my master, not the money that I have. So if we truly have God as our master, it means that we are loving him more than anything else around us, with our mind, with our heart, with our strength. How do we love God with our mind? Well, we love God with our mind as far as it concerns money by by striving to think God's thoughts about money and material things. We do it by accepting God's laws about material things and their role. By speaking about money and and other material things in ways that are in line with what God says and what we say that we believe and what reiterate the truth. We use our strength to make sure that we never work at a job or earn resources or gain material things through anything that would be illegal or dishonoring to God or something that is outside of his will. We labor to supply our needs, not to provide us with every want that we have. We only work at jobs that are constructive and lawful and doing good to everyone around us in our work, being faithful in what we do. And in our heart, we do it by putting our full trust in the one who is our master. And that leads to the rest of the part 
sermon. We talked about treasure and trust. Because I would have a feeling that almost every one of us in worship today would say, oh, no, no, no. I mean, I, I, I appreciate having financial resources. I appreciate having the things that I need for life and a little bit extra that I can enjoy. But my treasure is really in God. He is my treasure. And so Jesus says, okay, let's put that to the test. Let, let's, let's just see if that really is true. And that's why at verse 25, he says, this is why I tell you. See, he's just said, you cannot serve God and material things. So this is why I tell you, don't worry about your life. You see, that's the real test. We can say all day long, oh, I trust the Lord. I, he, he is my treasure. Well, then why do we worry so much about things? Why do we throw these things out? That's the second question. Whom do we truly trust? The first question was, what do we truly treasure? But then, whom do we truly trust? What does trusting God look like? Well, it, it means we're, we're not obsessed with worry. Three times in this passage, he tells us, don't worry. You see it? It's in verse 25. It's in verse 31. So don't worry, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? And it's again in verse 34. And so he tells us that tr truly treasuring God, truly seeing him as the master of our lives, means that we don't have to worry obsessively and incessantly about the things that go on in our lives. Now listen, Please understand, when Jesus says trust God instead of trusting your financial resources, it doesn't mean that he's anti-work or, or anti-money or anti-private property or anti-labor or anti-banking or anti-savings or anti-investment or even anti-enjoyment. All of those things are in the Bible. And there's obviously a place for appropriate concern. If you have your retirement money in the stock market, you probably have some appropriate concern after the last week or so in what's going on. But there's a difference between being concerned and worrying and allowing it just to eat at you because what happens is you begin to, to, to belie the statement that you put your trust in God when these kinds of things can just eat away at you that are just temporal things in our lives. What Jesus is saying is not to let the trinity of worldly things, what we eat, what we drink, what we wear, distract us from the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, there is a godly anxiety that we have over the things of God. We want to see God's kingdom extended. We're anxious to get out into the world and share the gospel. We're anxious to see God's kingdom grow and to flourish. We're anxious to see the, the work of God being done. And then there's atheistic anxiety, which is worry that thinks or acts as if God cannot see, God does not care, God will not give. That kind of anxiety is ungodly. And you see, that's exactly what we do when we begin to worry about temporal things. Let me just say that to you again. When we worry about temporal issues in this life, in essence, we're saying either that God cannot see what's going on in my life, or God does not care about what's going on in my life, or God will not help me with what's going on in my life. And all three of those things are absolutely unacceptable 
for those of us who put our trust in Christ. It is an affront to the person, the providence, the provision of God. But why does God say this? Why does, why does he make this statement? Well, he gives three good reasons in these verses. Let me just show them to you quickly. Number one, the reason Jesus says that we shouldn't worry is because worry is unproductive. It's unproductive. Look at verse 27 of Matthew chapter 6. In verse 27, he says, Can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? Now, no matter what translation of the Bible you use, there are some things that you like and some things you don't like. I really think a better translation of this verse is not one cubit to your height, because a cubit's 18 inches. I don't think anybody would think that even by that you get grow 18 inches, a foot and a half. Cubit also was a word that was used in Jesus' day for a distance of time. And so really what I think Jesus was saying was not adding more to your height. He's talking about adding more to the length of your life. In fact, some of your translations probably say that. How can worrying help you add any more length to your life? Actually, if we worry a whole lot, we probably shorten our life instead of lengthening it. So the bottom line is, is that worrying is absolutely unproductive. It does not gain us anything. The situation does not change just because we worry over it. Now that's very practical, but I want you to listen and think about that. How does worrying about a temporal situation change the situation? It doesn't. Not one bit. The second thing Jesus tells us, the second reason why he says it, is because worry isn't necessary. Let me back up a verse. Look at verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the sky. That's the first, first example. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Learn how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. So if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the idolaters eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. You see, this is one of those arguments that you see a lot of times in Scripture. Jesus will start with the smaller thing and go to the bigger thing. He says, look at the birds. Look at the flowers. Look at how God takes care of them. And if God will take care of them, and you're of much more value to God than either of those, don't you think he also will take care of you? Don't you think he's going to take care of your situation? It's not necessary to worry. Your father is not asleep at the wheel. He is taking care of the situation. Our job is to trust him and understand that he's taking care of everything that we need. And the third thing is because worrying is unworthy of us as it's just absolutely unworthy. I'm going to go all the way back to verse 25. Jesus asks one of the most important, if not the most important question in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of verse 25, Jesus says, Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Isn't your life more than just what you eat and drink and wear? Isn't your life more than just the size of house you live in or the kind of car you drive? And most of us would say, well, yeah, it is. Life is more than just those things. 
But sometimes we get caught up in those things, don't we? We all do. Every one of us, including me, there are times when we worry about those temporal things. And the reason is we have forgotten what the more is. What is the more that Jesus is talking about? Well, the answer to that is found out in verse 33. Because in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, he tells us what the more is to this life than just what we eat, what we drink, what we wear. In verse 33, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. That is the more, seeking God's kingdom. Looking out for it. Searching for ways. Not seeking it like we can't find it. It's seeking to fulfill and be a part of it. It means that if we're seeking God's kingdom, that we're seeking the king. A closer relationship with Christ. It means that we're praying for God's kingdom. We learned in chapter, early, earlier in chapter 6, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It means that we are seeking ways to tell other people about the glories of being part of God's kingdom. And so we're evangelizing through the relationships that we have with people who don't know him. It, seeking the kingdom means that we are obeying what God wants us to do so that his kingdom becomes evident in our lives and we become inviting to the others around us who don't have the same anchor that we have in the kingdom of God. Seeking God's kingdom means that we are working in ways that please God. The things that we do, the way that we act, what we do out in public. It means that we have an eye on social reform. That's not something we talk about in the evangelical church a lot, but it's an important part of Jesus' pattern because we want to model the kingdom in little bits and pieces everywhere we go. And so when we help a family get a better leg up and a better answer to the problems in their lives, we've brought a little bit of the kingdom. When we do something in our city, to help make it a better place to live. When we make it more family-friendly and family-oriented, we're working for God's kingdom. And we seek God's kingdom when we pursue righteousness, both in public places and in foreign lands. So we seek for His kingdom to expand until everyone has had a chance to hear. Beloved, when I say we should seek God's kingdom instead of the things of the world, I'm not saying that we as Christians don't have ambitions. I'm saying we have different ambitions. We have great ambitions for the things of God. We are passionate about seeing his kingdom expand, his kingdom be honored. We are excited about seeing a new person come to Christ. We are overjoyed when the work of God is, is effective in the life of another person. So we are not people who are lacking in ambition. It's just our priorities are different. So to close... I guess the concluding question really is this. We've asked, what do we truly treasure? We've asked, whom do we truly trust? The final question is, who truly is your God? Who is your God? Who is my God? I can give all the lip service I want. We were in a webcast yesterday, it will be when you see this, and Daniel Henderson was talking about our declarative and our demonstrative values. 
Because we can declare that Jesus is our treasure, that the kingdom of God is where we put our trust, that we, we believe in him and we trust him. And yet if our lives look like we're putting our trust in the things of this world, the things that won't last, the things that can be destroyed. By the way, Martin Luther said, how great a God is it that just a moth can destroy it? Then what we say and how we act don't come into line. And if that's where you are today, let me encourage you to examine your heart. Find out, what am I focusing my spiritual eyes on? The things of the world or the things of God? And then what we do, as I've said so many times, it's not turn over a new leaf and try harder. It's not saying i got to just stop worrying. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop. Then you'll be worrying about worrying, okay? It's not that we stop worrying. It's what we do is we turn those things over and say, you know what? I want to seek your kingdom, Father. I, I need to be so busy taking care of your kingdom that I don't have time to worry about these things. I don't have time to worry about these matters because I'm going to let you handle those things while I work for the good of your kingdom. While I grow my life deeper in worship, while I connect with my brothers and sisters in Christ, while I grow every day in Christ's likeness, and while I reach out into a lost world, sharing both with my life and my words the truth of the gospel. You see, if we surrender these things and let him take care of them, because they're his to begin with, so that we can focus on his kingdom, we will find that not only is that he our treasure, he also is our trust. So with that in mind, let's bow our heads together. Lord, we love you so much. There's not a one of us, I don't think, in this room, with maybe just a couple of exceptions, that would not say that we love you more than anything else in our world. And yet every one of us at times is guilty of having two masters or trying to. Oh, you're our number one master, but we also are a master to our pocketbook, our 401k, our material resources, the car, the house, the boat, the other things. And Lord, we have to remember that Jesus told us very clearly we can only have one master. And those other things can become our servants rather than us being their servants. So, Father, help us today to recognize the fact that in your love, you've not told us to get out there and try harder. You don't whip us. You don't beat us. You don't guilt trip us. You open your arms and say, come to me. Give me those things. Look at the birds. Look at the flowers. Look at the world around you. The weather. All those things over which we have no control. And recognize if I take care of all those things, I'll take care of you too. So Lord, let us remember that in our lives. Let us come to you with joy, even now as we respond. May we come to you with joy, releasing those things that have obsessed us and worried us, releasing our, the value we place on the treasures of this world, putting all of our treasure and our trust in you and in you alone. For the glory of your kingdom, honor of your name and the exaltation of your son.